Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zora. Africa, Amka na Unai. Good morning and welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa. And I am Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Wisani Matebula, and Figile Lingwati. Top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa. Refugees from the Central African Republic flee to neighboring countries and South African businesses and economic analysts slam the ruling ANC, ANC's new drive to create 6 million jobs in the next five years. In sports news, Mauritania coach confident ahead of their African Nations Championship opener with DR Congo. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. Good morning. Egyptian Interior Minister Mohamed Ibrahim has warned of a harsh crackdown on supporters of ousted President Mohamed Morsi as the country votes on a new draft constitution. The army has been put on high alert to deal with anyone attempting to disrupt the vote today and tomorrow. The vote comes amid ongoing tensions in the country with supporters of Morsi pledging to step up their protest on voting days. Once the referendum is approved, presidential and parliamentary elections will be held sometime in the middle of this year. The election of a new government in the Central African Republic will be supported by the international community, according to the UN special representative in the country, Bubaka Gai. More than four and a half million people have been forced to flee their homes following more than a year of internal conflict in the country. On Friday, two interim leaders stepped down from the government after failing to halt the fighting. Gai says the speedy election of a new leadership is crucial. The profile of this new adjustment of the transition could help restore hope. And my hope is that the nomination of the Prime Minister and of the government will reinforce this hope. The international community will then have to accompany this new team in the road to free, credible and democratic elections. Reports from the capital Bangui suggest that relative calm has returned to the streets. The United Nations mission in the Democratic Republic of Congo says it will not allow a resurgence of the March 23 rebel group. The UN Special Representative in Congo, Martin Kobler, told the UN Security Council that there are credible reports that the military recruitment of the M23 did not stop after a peace agreement between the M23 and the Congolese government, which was signed in Kenya in December last year. Kobler says there are also credible reports of emerging M23 activities in Uturi in North East. Eastern Congo. 
South African non-governmental organization Gift of the Givers says South African hostage Pia Koroki from Yemeni by Yemeni rebels will only happen once a smaller ransom has been negotiated. Koroki was taken hostage last May. His wife Yolandi was released last week. Gift of the Givers founder Imtia Suleiman says plans are on track to meet the kidnappers in person and he'll be flying out to Yemen to pursue Koroki's release. Complicated, you know, in terms of the, of, the, of the release process, we were very lucky the first time. It actually a miracle. I don't even know how we pulled that one off to, to get Yulani out in four days without paying any ransom. The second one is going to be far more complicated. They told us very, very clearly on Friday morning when they handed Yulani out over to us. They said, "Remember, you have eight days. We need three million dollars, and you know what we're capable of." And then they told Yulani, "Your husband's life is in your hands." Hundreds of people have been injured by exploding fireworks in the Libyan capital, Tripoli, where Muslims were celebrating the birth of the Prophet Muhammad. The Lana News Agency says more than 640 people were hurt. It says many of them had fingers amputated. Celebrations for the birth of the Prophet began last night. Experts say injury tolls are higher this year because of lax customs controls of potent fireworks imported from Asian countries. And that's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorna. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Over the past two days, some 60 wounded people have been admitted to the community hospital in the Central African Republic capital, Bangui. The International Committee of the Red Cross, ICRC, supports the facility with medical supplies and the fighting continues, making it a challenge to deal with the major influx into the hospital. The organization calls on all parties to respect medical personnel and the facilities in which they work. For a further update on the situation in that country, here's ICRC spokesperson Nadia Dipsy. Well, we can say, Jane, as we have noticed that, you know, Friday, Saturday and a little bit on Sunday were quite difficult days. There was a lot of tension. There was a lot of clashes between armed groups. We even heard that there was looting taking place in the town. So there was a lot of concern in those few days. Since yesterday, the situation has been slightly calmer, but then it's very difficult to tell for sure whether this will stay calm or whether the situation will then, you know, how it will evolve in the coming days. So for the moment, we're cautiously saying it's calm without being able to speculate on what the, the coming days will bring for various reasons, including the, the recent developments on the political landscape. Nadia, and what about the influx of people, those displaced? Are they still continuing to arrive in Bangui? Well, I mean, we were talking about people who were displaced in Bangui. We're mostly talking about people from the capital itself. I think that the majority of people who are currently displaced within the capital are from different neighborhoods in the capital. We're not talking about displacement from other towns or villages in the country towards Bangui. We were talking about people who were internally displaced within the capital itself. In that case, there are several sites, mainly the airport, and you know, which, according to the latest estimations, there are about 100 thousand people in that site. 
So that's somewhere that we're very highly present since the beginning of December. And we continue to be very active there, you know, providing water assistance, providing uh, latrines and hygiene promotion. Um, we are active on another site uh, in a monastery, which also has about 30,000 people, according to the priests on the spot. And we're also providing water and we've built latrines and we're regularly providing water to these sites. So we're talking about a very significant uh, humanitarian need. Finally, elaborate more on the challenges presented by the situation in the Central African Republic for the ICRC as well as the National Red Cross. Definitely, I think I would say, you know, working every day with the Central African Red Cross, that the biggest challenge in such situations is always the question of security and being able to safely work. So that is a constant concern. That's why it's always very important to remind all armed groups that are present uh, in Bangui of the importance of respecting civilians, uh, humanitarian workers, Red Cross workers, and medical establishments. This is essential. And this is a message that we've been passing regularly since the 5th, 5th of December until now and even before that, because this is what allows us to work and provide services to all these people, because a lot of people fled with nothing, you know, nothing on their bags, nothing in their pockets, nothing to eat, nothing to drink. So we are talking about difficult humanitarian conditions. So it's very important that security is, you know, is re-established, not only to allow the displaced to feel safe enough to go home, but also to allow humanitarian workers to conduct their work in appropriate security conditions. That was Nadia Dipsy, spokesperson for the International Committee of the Red Cross, on the line from Bangui in the Central African Republic, talking to Jane Matibula. Meanwhile, refugees from the Central African Republic continue to move to neighboring countries as the humanitarian situation in the troubled country worsens. The number of refugees in East, eastern Cameroon that shares a boundary with the Central African Republic has increased from 55,000 to 70,000 after this weekend's shooting incident in which 15 people died. Conflict has erupted between the refugees, their host country and staff of the United Nations over dwindling humanitarian assistance. The government of Cameroon suspects that rebels may be hiding among the refugees. Moki Kinzega reports. These villagers of eastern Cameroon applaud as soldiers of a rapid intervention battalion of the Cameroon Armed Forces arrive in their locality. They say when Michel Jutodia was asked to resign, some soldiers that were loyal to him crossed over to their locality. Villages in that part of Cameroon have served as a hiding ground for fleeing Central African Muslim Seleka rebels ever since French and African Union forces arrived in Bangui and started a disarmament process. Lisette Atu told me how she was happy over the act of bravery of Cameroonian soldiers who attacked the fleeing rebels from Central African Republic. She says the Cameroonian army defended itself very well. They succeeded to seize weapons and to kill one of the gang members of Seleka, she asked, and says the Cameroonian government must work hard to combat these Seleka guys who want to bring this order in her country, Cameroon. Another resident, this time of Kete, still in eastern Cameroon, 
called Papa Etienne, also said he was delighted that the Cameroonian government has come to their rescue. He says, truly, it is not the first time that Central Africans are coming into their country, Cameroon, to attack them. He says they abuse them and even exploit their natural resources. The Cameroonian army, he adds, defended itself and it is their right. The governor of Cameroon's East region, Ivara Dibois Samuel Jodoné, says an impressive quantity of war weapons have been seized from the rebels, whom he says have been terrorizing Cameroonians on a regular basis. Rebels that are living in Central Africa, in the bush, come to our territory armed here and there, create a kind of panic and so on. Earlier this month, the government of Cameroon announced that it had created a military air base and deployed its elite military corps, called the Rapid Intervention Battalion, to the eastern part of the country to stop the rebels from advancing and using the area as a training ground. Cameroon's Minister of Defense, Edgar Alemebengo, visited the frightened people of the villages and assured them of their security. Je voudrais dire... He says, I want to let you know that with all what has been created here, that is in the capital of the east of Cameroon, as far as national security is concerned, as far as defense and security forces are concerned, that part of Cameroon today is among the most secured areas in the country. He urges the people not to fear. La région de l'Est se trouve actuellement parmi les plus musclés au Cameroun sur le plan de la défense et de la sécurité. Earlier this month, refugees from the Central African Republic attacked and held hostage two staff of the United Nations working with the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees. After about a week of negotiations, they freed the two people. Mamadi Fata Kuruma and his colleague Adama said they were maltreated by the refugees who said they were not happy their humanitarian needs were not being attended to. With the number of refugees rising from about 55,000 to over 70,000 in less than a week, it is of no doubt that their humanitarian situation is becoming worse. The Cameroonian Red Cross has said that hunger is increasing in the area and that they will not have enough means to take care of the increasing number of Central African refugees. The refugees say what provoked them to leave immediately, even with negotiations that led to Michel Jotodia relinquishing power is that 15 people died in their country during conflicts over the weekend. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzaka in Yaoundé, Cameroon. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. The UN's leading...
protagonist in the DRC says the positive atmosphere that prevailed in the country following the defeat of M23 rebels last year that led to the conclusion of the Kampala process has vanished. Great Lakes Special Envoy Mary Robinson was briefing the Security Council on latest developments in the implementation of the Peace, Security and Cooperation Framework signed last year. Speaking via video link from Kinshasa, she warned that the region was going through a period of renewed turbulence. Sharon Brasby's reports from New York. The precariousness of security in neighboring Central African Republic and South Sudan don't augur well for efforts in the DRC. Mary Robinson speaking via an at times distorted video link from the DRC capital Kinshasa. As we approach the first anniversary of its signing, and despite the fragility of the situation in the region, the peace, security and cooperation framework remains the best chance to achieve sustainable peace, security, cooperation and development in the Great Lakes region. However, it's essential that the pace of its implementation be increased in order to maximize its impact. She drew attention to the slow pace of security sector reform at a national level, which is seen as a critical element of a return to state authority in the country's east. Another key priority is the swift implementation of an effective DDR program, as Martin Kobler has said, to disarm and reintegrate the former combatants of the M23, including those who are in Uganda and Rwanda, as well as all the other fighters who have voluntarily surrendered. A prolonged presence of those ex-combatants in cantonment areas without reintegration could persuade some of them to return to an armed group. So time is of the essence. Military action against other rebel groups is expected to intensify soon, with the Secretary-General's special representative to that country, Martin Kobler, praising the DRC army for being more disciplined in its operations. With rebel groups, the Democratic Forces for the Liberation of Rwanda, and the Allied Democratic Forces firmly in their sights. Through military pressure, the FDLR must be left with no choice to come out of the bush. The leadership must be left with no choice other to surrender. Its racist ideology must be left with no choice than to disappear. This is the clear message for 2014, the year we commemorate the 20th anniversary of the genocide in Rwanda. Kobler also hinted at an escalation in the non-military component of the UN mission in the country. The stabilization of areas liberated from the control of armed groups is essential. Our new stabilization support plan has been presented to the government and to all our international partners. This guiding framework brings the government, MONUSCO, UN agencies and NGOs together. And I call upon all member states to support the implementation of this stabilization strategy by funding stabilization programs, including the Islands of Stability. So, despite the initial emphasis on military actions, UN officials are also seeking to highlight the need for economic development once rogue elements have been subdued. This remains a complicated task, but the donor community, particularly from the region, has been urged to remain engaged so that military gains are not lost due to a lack of financial developmental support. Sherman Bryceby at the United Nations headquarters, New York.
Former South African President Thabo Mbeki says Africa as a continent needs progressive scholarship to bring about change on the continent. He delivered the keynote address at the University of South Africa's summer school. The theme for the week is decolonizing knowledge, power and being. Lila Machnas reports. Former President Thabo Mbeki asked hard questions regarding the state of the African continent. He says the continent hasn't been able to properly address the violence and instability. Poverty also seems to be an issue the continent can't get rid of. Very central to the struggles for national liberation across our continent has been this challenge of eradicating poverty and underdevelopment. Everybody, I'm saying throughout the liberation struggles throughout our continent, this has been a central objective. But where are we? He said tribalism is also holding the continent back. Mbeki made an example of the ANC. He said 120 years ago the ANC decided to demolish tribalism. But South Africa, one and and a half, 102 years later, tribalism in this country is raising its head again. Why? Already, what I'm told, is people are, are beginning to gang up in the country to form federations of tribes. Let us get together in order to defeat tribes so-and-so. That is part of the discourse that's taking place in the country. I think that is worrying. Mbeki says it appears the continent is regressing when it comes to nation-building and national unity because it still uses colonial categories when defining different nations. This definition of them themselves as being Hutu and Tutsi is a colonial construct didn't come from themselves, but the colonial powers found this useful in terms of the management of these colonies. Then the the colonialists leave, but that thinking remains with us. We borrow these categories and therefore indeed would fail, I'm saying, to achieve this national unity that we're talking about. He further asked how the African society can be organized in order for the people to govern and not the elite. It may very well be that in the things that we've done as Africans to address this thing, we have proceeded from an intellectual position that is wrong, that is false. We've looked at wrong things. Maybe we have uh, not decolonized our minds. We are trapped in a whatever might be that colonial framework which then produces the failures that we can actually see. Mbeki told the assembled international delegates that Africa must find its place in the world because without solving this, the other problems on the continent will not be solved. To determine its place in the world, the continent needs progressive scholarship. This democracy that we're talking about and and governance, good governance and all that, what are these intellectual tools that we should use actually to produce uh, this democracy which the continent needs. And I'm saying again, we need this intervention of a progressive scholarship about this. The summer school ends on 17 January. Lila Magnus, Pretoria. Arbitrary arrest, infringement on basic freedoms and other viola- violations against more than 260 members of parliament 
will be examined when the Human Rights Committee of the Interparliamentary Union, IPU, meets in Geneva this week. With 19 cases involving 113 elected officials from Africa, the continent has the highest number of MPs whose cases are being considered. They include 11 Eritrean MPs whose fates remain unknown following the arrest in September 2001 after they wrote a letter calling for democratic reform. For more on the African cases, Derek Mbata spoke to Rogier Hazenga, head of the IPU's human rights program. These cases are from a variety of countries. And I can also say that in these cases, the concerns are also very varied. We have cases of disappearances, cases of the unlawful revocation of parliamentary mandates. We have politically motivated proceedings. We have the disruption of public meetings, alleged violations of the right to freedom of assembly. There is a variety of concerns in these different cases. Are you at liberty to mention some of the countries that are involved in these cases? Oh, absolutely. For instance, the committee looks at several cases in the Democratic Republic of Congo where MPs were detained. Well, there's still the case of Mr. Diomi Nadongala, who is still in detention. There's the case of Mr. Leona Hitimana in Rwanda, who disappeared in 2003. There is still no real investigation that has tried to shed light on what happened to him. The case of Mr. Ambassazang in Cameroon, who is being prosecuted, and there are concerns about due process. So there is a variety of situations that the committee has been called on to look at. Yes, I understand there is also the case of 11 Eritrean members of parliament. There is, in fact, relatively little information on what happened to them, and that's, in fact, one of the biggest concerns for the IPU, is these people, together with four others, who are often referred to as the G15, they wrote a letter to President Afewerki asking for democratic reforms in their country. And they were all colleagues in the fight for independence from Ethiopia. But after they had written that letter in 2001, they disappeared. They were immediately arrested. The four of the 15 who were not arrested were lucky because they were outside of the country. But the 11 were taken away, and we still don't know what happened to them. And so this is of tremendous concern to the committee, and it's been pushing the Eritrean authorities to shed light on the situation of these MPs and also to call on the Eritrean authorities to release them. What has been the response of the Eritrean authorities? Well, at the very beginning, through the Eritrean ambassador in Brussels, we were getting some feedback, and they were trying to at least provide us with some information and some justification for having arrested these persons. But after a couple of years, I mean, my view is that the Eritrean authorities were simply not very happy with the fact that the committee was looking into this situation, and they stopped cooperating with the IPU. We've tried to set up many meetings. The committee has suggested an on-site mission, but there has virtually been no response from the Eritrean authorities on this. What more can the IPU committee do to help protect members of parliament? Well, even in a very deplorable case like the case in Eritrea, what the committee tries to do is also to unite forces as much as possible. It is important to unite forces because at the end of the day, it's only through persuasion that we will try to obtain information about these persons and hopefully also bring about the release of those who are still alive. Talking about that, are there any examples of success stories that the committee can cite? 
Absolutely. Success stories are always stories where there is something good and bad. I can mention to you, for instance, the fact that Mr. Sam Renzi, the opposition leader in Cambodia, he was allowed back into the country last year. Uh, his situation, it was a situation in which he was sentenced to a long prison sentence, a sentence that the Committee on the Human Rights of Parliamentarians had always considered to be totally inappropriate. And we had always asked the authorities to allow Sam Renzi to come back to his country as a free man. Now, unfortunately, he was not allowed to stand in the elections. But part of what we have worked for for so long happened, which was his return. There is the release of Mr. Jacques Chalupa, a prominent former member of the parliament of the DRC, who was released not so long ago. So there are many kinds of success stories at different levels, and it also means each time something different depending on the case. That was Rohir Hanzaka, head of the IPU's Human Rights Programme, talking to UN Radio's Derek Mbata. The Global Network of Civil Society Organization Civicus and the ZCSD have called on the Zambian government and its international development partners to stop harassing non-governmental organizations in that country. This after reports that donor governments are refusing to provide financial assistance to Zambian NGOs unless they register under the NGO Act, which is regarded as restrictive. Civicus and the ZCSD say the refusal of these international governments to financially assist them on such conditions reveals a glaring discrepancy between donor priorities and those of national NGOs. The ZCSD Executive Secretary Louis Mwape elaborates. Many of the national organizations in Zambia objected to this. I give you an example defining the geographical operation of civil society organizations. Civil society organizations under that law are supposed to be defined to say I will be operating in this area and that area. And once probably you are, you are asking from government and if they feel that they are not strong in that area, they will deny you registration on that aspect. The other issue of perpetual succession where organizations had to re-register every after five years. It is also a threat to the civil society organization, freedom of expression, because what will happen is that you need to be careful on what you say and what you do, because after five years, organization might not be re-registered, because it might have been bringing or advocating on issues that might not have been good for perceived it to be good on part of the uh, existing political party. I'm not saying existing government, but the existing political party. So in that case, it is to guarantee an organization in order to be registered after five years. Mr. Mope, a number of governments say uh, they can only provide financial assistance provided NGOs register under this law. Now, ZCSD and Civicus say these requirements are undermining the, the national NGOs' campaign 
to repeal this unjust law. Can you tell us more about this campaign that CSD and other organizations have been involved with and how long has it been running and how successful then um, has it been given that there is this requirement that NGOs register under this law before they can be granted financial assistance? This thing has just started. I think uh, originally we know that the, our donors are cooperating partners. Most donors, when they are granting financial support to the local NGOs, there is uh, a clause within the contracts which indicates that an NGO that is being funded has to be registered under the laws of that country. And for now, what they have done is that they have picked to say an NGO should be registered under the NGO Act. And that is what we are challenging to say for now, because all the NGOs that are operating in Zambia, by law, are operating under the laws which are existing. For example, the Societies Act, the Companies Act, and the Land Successions Act, which acts have not been repealed and have not been declared to be invalid. And so, we feel that all the organizations that are registered under legal legislations of this country, they should be given an opportunity to access donor funds even if they have not registered under the NGO Act. Do you see more NGOs registering? Or what is rather the general decree on this matter? Because we understand that only a few organizations have registered. This is about 82 out of the 904 NGOs on the government's registrar that have registered under this law. Do you see more bodies registering just um, in the name of receiving these funds? Yes. The 82 organizations, the majority of them are CBOs which are supported by government and then also the international organizations which in the past were operating under memorandum of understanding. And so we haven't seen genuine organizations registering on this law. We have challenged government to produce the list of organizations that have registered and for sure there are very, very few, if any, that are from the genuine civil society movement. Mr. Mwape, do you see the Zambian government repealing this NGO Act? If we stand together as civil society organizations, government will have no choice but to suspend that because we know why they are moving very fast to enact that law. Because you know that the PF government, if you read their manifesto on page 49, they indicated that once in power they were going to repeal the NGO Act. That was Louis Mwape, Executive Secretary of the Zambia Council for Social Development, on the line from Lusaka, Zambia, talking to Selina Ndobong. And Musa's up next with the headlines.
Good morning. Egyptian Interior Minister Mohamed Ibrahim has warned of a harsh crackdown on supporters of ousted President Mohamed Morsi as the country votes on a new draft constitution. The election of a new government in the Central African Republic will be supported by the international community, according to the UN Special Representative in the country, Pubaka Gai. And the United Nations mission in the Democratic Republic of Congo says it will not allow a resurgence of the M23 rebel group. And those are the stories making headlines. The food price index for December, compiled by the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization, FAO, shows only a slight increase from November. However, the food price index for 2013 as a whole now averages 209.9 points, which is only 1.6% below 2012. These numbers for 2013 are the third highest on record. The index is a measure of the monthly change in international prices of major food crop and commodities. Abdulreza Abbasian a senior economist at FAO, elaborates on the main drivers behind recent price trends in international food markets and what they mean. Well, we don't know if prices are going to be steady in the future, but we can tell is that over the last three months at least, the FAO food price index held steady. But the index for the year 2013 still averages near historically high levels. Why? Now, the index is a result of calculating the prices of all the commodities that we use. We're talking here about over 70 price quotations. Having said that, one has to be careful in interpreting what the overall average means because prices for some of the commodities in the index, for example, cereals or sugar, have plunged sharply during the 2013 period simply because of supply situation improving, productions near record levels, if not record, and this supply recovery has resulted in a big price correction in those sectors. On the other side of the equation, however, we witnessed huge surges in prices of commodities, especially in high-protein funds like meat and dairy. And here, for example, In fact, 2013 marked a year where prices were at record levels, and this upward price trend has been going on now for a number of months. And the reason for it is demand, is hugely demand-driven, especially from Asia. And this increase in demand is definitely putting up the prices of those commodities, offsetting declines we have seen in prices of grains. If you take the whole 2013 and add up every month, which now we have figures for, you still end up with an average that is the third highest on record. So basically it means that the last three years we've also been at high level period and we cannot say that moderate declines we have seen has yet put the situation anywhere near comfortable levels we used to have. Looking forward, how vulnerable is the current international food market to a price shock? Given what we know about the market and about supply situation, especially for crops that really matter for food security, I think that we are in a more comfortable situation than we have been for a number of years. And this is very comforting. As far as definitely the first half of 2014 is concerned, I think that it is very unlikely that we find ourselves in a situation similar to the recent past. 
when we're looking into the second half of 2014, of course, still a lot will depend on the outcome of the harvests. There are some concerns here and there. However, we have good supplies and many parts of the world this year are expected, in fact, to increase production. Plantings are up almost everywhere. And therefore, while it is very early to predict, I think that we could be more optimistic that, in fact, in 2014, we will have another large crops coming, especially on the cereal side. And this will certainly help to smoothen prices a bit further in 2014 as compared to 2013. That was Abdul Reza Abbasian, a senior economist at United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization, talking to Sandra Ferrari of FAO Radio in Rome. South African businesses and various economic analysts have slammed the ruling African National Congress's new drive to create 6 million jobs in the next five years. Economists say the ruling party is setting unrealistic targets to win votes in this year's presidential election. The latest announcement comes in the wake of reports that various companies are planning to share thousands of jobs this quarter. These include Talcom, Sassel, Harmony Gold and the manufacturing sector. Amina Akram reports. The ANC has hailed its latest manifesto as stepping stone towards economic transformation of the country post-apartheid. The ruling party will prioritize jobs and socio-economic transformation in the next five years. They further promise to make doing business with the state easier for local businesses, which will kickstart economic growth and job creation. The party also plans to create six million job opportunities in the next five years. NC Treasurer General Zuelim Kize. Entrenching long-term planning, encouraging private sector participation in the infrastructure, in the IT, and, and all other social infrastructure, experiential learning for young people. And we think that's one of the areas where we will be able to assist uh, to get to those job opportunities that we're talking about, which uh, you know some of them might be short-term, some of them can be long-term, and they are largely uh, to move people from uh, you know subsistence or poverty level and help them to have some subsistence uh, kind of uh, job uh, opportunities. But economists say promises being made, especially on job creation, are not sustainable. Russell Lamreti is head of strategy at ETM Analytics. The, the six million jobs target is completely untenable uh, under the current regulatory structure that we have in South Africa, under the current policy structure. That we, um, Jacob Zuma a number of years ago announced that the, the target was five million jobs, and uh, incredibly they've increased the target uh, without offering anything anything new and substantive that's going to really make that turnaround. It seems on the surface that all they're really proposing is to increase the number of government jobs, government-created jobs available through through various public works projects um, and perhaps through increasing the size of, of the state itself. Lamreti says government should instead look into partnering more with the private sector and build stronger small-medium enterprises where the majority of work opportunities come from. Those are, those are not really sustainable and they're really just funded by taxpayers in the private sector, which is really where we're lacking growth and dynamism in the economy. So, of course, during an election campaign, we're going to hear a lot more of it because uh, it's that kind of rhetoric that uh, politicians use in, in the run-up to elections. We've got to have a far more uh, clear debate about the substantive reforms that are needed, and, and those are just nowhere on the horizon, unfortunately, with this current government. Rulof Botha is economics advisor at PricewaterhouseCoopers, PwC. As far as I'm concerned, strengthen and uh, dramatically expand the activities of the small enterprise 
development um, organization which is housed at the DTI, less emphasis on affirmative action and more emphasis on the criteria related to job creation. Uh, and there is certainly a lot of scope for local procurement because uh, our BRICS membership has, in fact, worked more in favor of the Chinese and the Indians than, than South Africa. We are uh, importing hopelessly too much manufactured stuff from India and, and especially from China. And if they are pragmatic about this and, and they can do this through an agency, perhaps even housed at National Treasury, where you make 100% sure that the tender procedures are not, are not corrupt, um, then I am still hopeful that we can create jobs, but not on the scale that they are promising. Economists say the country needs to grow between 5 and 6% per annum if any substantial impact is to be made in economic growth and job creation. Lamreti says the manifesto also does not bold well for business confidence. I don't think that the, the ANC manifesto will engender any additional confidence in, in, in the economy and, and in the country. A continuation of what we've actually seen in the NDP. Uh, as much as people have lauded the NDP, my own opinion on it and, and that of our firm ETM is that uh, the NDP also lacks a lot of clarity. It's a huge document that says a lot. Fortunately, uh, that is leading to a kind of stagnation in the economy. Botha believes government also needs to deregulate the labor policy and make it easier for businesses to employ people. That report by Amina Akram. We sign Matebulas up next with our economics update. Thanks, Lulu. Africa's biggest landline operator, Telcom, says it urgently needs more cost cuts, including further reductions to its workforce and a new turnaround plan. The landline service provider has already laid off 9% of its workforce in South Africa and is looking to cut back on its managerial payroll. Chief Executive Sipo Maseko has also taken away perks such as year-end functions and long service awards from the workforce of nearly 21,000 people. Maseko joined the company nearly 10 months ago is Telcom's sixth CEO since 2005. The latest ADCOP employment index shows that South Africa's skills shortage is substantial and is not being met by local supply of high-skilled workers. The index has asked government to urgently relax uh, restrictions on foreigners working in their country to supplement the dwindling local supply of skills. Employment figures grew by almost 14,000 last November and December. ADCOP economist Lon Sharp elaborates. There is a shortage of and the estimates vary between 500 and 800,000 high-skilled workers in South Africa. The problem is aggravated because the Department of Home Affairs has made it much more difficult for high-skilled foreigners to find work in South Africa. Uh, Our tertiary education system is also a shambles. The FET colleges uh, that are government-operated are not functioning at all. Exchange operator Nasdaq OMX Group and the index provider SP Dow Jones uh, say they are interested in acquisitions to grow their index businesses. In a sign, the sector could see 
a wave of deals as investors pour tens of, th- of billions of dollars into portfolios that track benchmarks. Both Nasdaq CEO Robert Greifeld and S&P Dow Jones Chief Executive Alex Maturi say they are interested in looking at bidding on index businesses that comes to the market. Brett Wilkinson has more. Nasdaq launched its first index, the Nasdaq Composite, in 1971. And today, $1 trillion in assets track Nasdaq indices. The company spent the last 12 months integrating its indices with its data offerings. It launched 13,000 new indices on Monday. S&P Dow Jones Indices says it will also look at any other assets in the indices space that might come up for sale as well. Analysts have warned that a frenzy around indexing may lead to bidding wars. Investors have poured more than $1.1 trillion into index-based mutual funds and exchanged trade funds over the five years ending November the 30th, 2013. And Apple lost a bid to block an antitrust monitor appointed after a judge found that the company had conspired to fix e-book prices. At a hearing, U.S. District Judge Dennis Cote in Manhattan denied Apple's request to stay in order requiring an external compliance monitor pending the company's appeal. Cote said she would promptly issue a decision explaining her reasoning. Apple would then have 48 hours to seek an emergency stay from the Federal Appeals Court in New York. The hearing was the latest to spill out of a growing battle stemming from April's objections to the monitor. Financial indicators at this hour, the rent going down now to 10.75 to the dollar and 888.58 Botswana Pulas and 5.65 as I'm in Quachas. The US dollar also trading at 0.61 to the British pound and 0.73 to the euro. Commodities gold $1,243. Platinum is at $1,426 a fine ounce. And Brent crude oil going down also $106.03 a barrel. And that's how it's looking. Thank you, Wisani. Figure Lungwati up next with our sports update. Now, sports update this hour, starting off with football news. Mauritania coach Patrice Nevo says he's not intimidated by the inaugural Chan winners DR Congo. Mauritania and DRC will have the honor of exchanging blows in the first match of the Group D of the African Nations Championship at Pichamokawa Stadium in South Africa's Limpopo province later this afternoon. Former DRC Guinea coach Nivo, speaking through an interpreter, says he knows what DRC is all about. Que j'ai entra... enfin, je dire, à l'époque où j'ai entraîné le RD Congo, je dirais qu'il ne reste plus beaucoup de joueurs. I know the opponent quite well, and then uh, that's an asset for us. And then what we're going to... I'm going to translate that to my player on the field. Nevo says their past victories against African soccer giants Senegal and Cameroon counts for nothing now. Goals from El Moutassem, Abu Shanaf and Abdel Salam Omar were enough to give Libya a perfect start after they beat Ethiopia 2-0 in the African Nations Championship Group C encounter at the Free State Stadium in Bloemfontein. 
Despite the fact that Ethiopians enjoyed a lot of support from the hugely partisan crowd, their coach Sunet Bishow feels the pressure from the passionate fans did not get to his players, but they simply did not perform. No, always uh, our, our players are supported even not only here. Uh, in, in, in their homeland, they are supported by many Ethiopians. And where, uh, where, where they are out also, out of their country, they are supported by many of Ethiopians. So this, this will give them a very, uh, you know, st- strength. But our problem is we, we conclude uh, our game before we play the game. Well, we, we expect, we, we always say we win. We will, we will, we win any, any, any team. But when uh, when you come to into practice, you lose. It's not a matter of you know getting uh, too much uh, supporters, uh, uh, but it is all, it is our our own problem. It's not the supporters' problem. So there is no any pressure. Portugal and Real Madrid forward Cristiano Ronaldo was overcome with emotions after being voted the world's best player for 2013 on ending his great rival Lionel Messi's dominance of the award. Although he failed to win any major titles with Real Madrid last season, Ronaldo has been rewarded for his immense goal-scoring prowess as he swept aside Messi, winner for the last four years, and Frenchman Frank Ribéry. Ronaldo, runner-up for three of the last four years, overwhelmed with emotions, thanked his teammates, the national team, and his family for their support. And in athletics, world indoor 800-meter champion and 2008 Olympic winner Pamela Jalimo is set to defend her title at the IAAF indoor permit meeting set for Moscow, Russia on the 2nd of February. Despite being the world indoor champion for the distance, this will just be Jalimo's fourth indoor 800-meter race to date. The African champion has been out for about eight months injured. It will also be something of a comeback for the 24-year-old who had just won one race in 2013, a low-key 400-meter run in early May. The organizers have also lined up rising Kenyan talent Nelly Jepkoske alongside Olympic bronze medalist Yekaterina Poistogova, 2011 European door champion Jenny Meadows, and reigning European indoor champion Natalia Lupu. Lastly, Jamaican sprinter Asafa Powell will appear at a Jamaican anti-doping committee disciplinary hearing today. The former 100-meter world record holder tested positive for the banned stimulant oxylofrine at the national championship in June. Training partner Sharon Simpson tested positive for the same stimulant but denied being a cheat at her hearing. Powell is one of several witnesses to testify at Simpson's hearing, which was adjourned until the 4th of February. And that's your Sport News this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorra. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at this hour. 
Refugees from the Central African Republic flee to neighboring countries as the humanitarian situation worsens. And South African businesses and economic analysts slam the ruling African National Congress's new drive to create 6 million jobs in the next five years. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Lebu Munamukhulu, technical producer Mario Edwards and the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at infochannelafrica.org or send us an SMS to plus 2782-332-5905. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news is Freshly Ground with Buttercup. a pretty little buttercup I saw her walking one day I said hey I'm such a pretty little buttercup I'd like to take you away but oh you're such a pretty little buttercup I don't believe that you would stay oh no
And then the one I saw on that day 